Hello, friends, and welcome to episode two of the new Saving Christianity podcast, brought to you by the Christian Family Online in America. I'm your host, John Shields, and in this episode, we're going to go deeper into the book Saving Christianity, the book that tells us how to have more peace, healing, and hope in our lives. It's also the book that gave this podcast its name. And so for today, the title of this episode, our second episode, is The Sign of the Fish. The Sign of the Fish. And in this episode, you're going to hear some more of the hidden facts about Christianity that have been buried for 19 centuries. And also, like the previous episode, you're going to be encouraged and inspired by what you're going to hear. So, why will you be encouraged? You'll be encouraged because you and I can't have the same peace, healing, and hope that the early Christians had until we understand who they were and why they had the supernatural, wonderful supernatural behavior. So the purpose of this podcast is to tell you who they were and why they had this kind of behavior and how you and I, this is the important part as well, how we can have that kind of behavior too. But before we start, let me introduce to you again my best friend and the co-host of the Saving Christianity podcast, Owen Allen. Owen, welcome, my friends, to the second episode. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here uh, for the second episode of Saving Christianity. And you know what, John? I really enjoyed our first episode together, but I think this episode is going to be even more interesting than the previous one. Why? Hmm. Well, because it's the story of the early Christian use of the little fish symbol, and it's a very interesting story. Yes, it is, Owen, and I'm anxious to get started. So why don't we start the story of why the early Christians— used a fish, a fish to identify themselves. That that was an odd identity, wasn't it? Well, it was. And, you know, uh, John, as a matter of fact, the, the fish symbol is an odd symbol. Yeah. And by the way, just before we leave that point, if some of our friends missed the previous episode, they can hear it, read a script of it on the internet at cfopods.com, C-F-O-P-O-D-S dot com. And on that page, they can click in the index or they can scroll, uh, scroll down, uh, obviously right at the top of the sheet there to episode number one, which yeah, was last time. That's right. And I hope all of you, all of our friends listening will uh, will visit, if you haven't, the previous episode so you can uh, uh, keep up to date with us as we go through these stories. Well, I hope that too, John. So anyway, here we go now with this episode, because last time we talked about the first Christians who lived in the first three centuries of early Christian history, and we talked about how they had such spiritual lives that non-Christians wanted the same lives, and thousands 
and thousands of non-Christians joined the movement and became Christians, and that's how, actually, Christianity spread worldwide in only 70 years. Now, that's true. And today, you know, we refer to the spread of Christianity evangelism as evangelism, except that today we only talk to non-Christians about it. We don't show them very much um, as we discussed in detail in our first episode, we don't we don't show them through our spiritual behavior. Right. We talk instead of show, right? right? Yes. Well, anyways, the, the point then in the previous episode was what we talked about, the daily lifestyle of the early Christians. And we actually call that the early Christian lifestyle. Lifestyle. You don't hear that term very often around today, but the early Christian lifestyle. And we said that that lifestyle lasted for 300 years Mm -hmm. or the first eight generations of Christians, but then, but then it mysteriously ended at the dawn of the fourth century. Yes, it ended at the open of the fourth century. Also, we didn't we define the word lifestyle in the previous episode? Well, we did, didn't we? Yes. We said that, that what scientists say that a lifestyle is a type of behavior, a way of living, a style of conduct. And we said that lifestyles are very important for this reason. <clears throat> if you see a person's lifestyle, you're seeing that person's spiritual level. And, that, and we said that is extremely important, too. Yeah, because uh, being aware of people's spiritual levels is the whole point of Christianity. And the whole point of Christianity is to let non-Christians see mm. our spiritual level. But, John, that's actually the problem because mm-hmm. since the early Christian lifestyle that we're talking about it ended— For most Christians, years and years ago, today, not all, but most Christians uh, don't have that power anymore, and that gives us a comparison, we could call it, Mm -hmm. a comparison. Now, history gives us this of two different Christian lifestyles. Think about that. Mm -hmm. History shows, you could even say, two types of Christians— Let's call them Lifestyle A and Lifestyle B. Lifestyle A was the early Christians. Mm -hmm. They were the most spiritual people on earth in their day. And they were so spiritual that they spread Christianity in every city and country of the world in only 70 years. Mm -hmm. But now the bad news. Lifestyle B is like this. Because Christian spirituality ended in the 4th century today, the average Christian is no more spiritual than a non-Christian. And because of that, today's average Christian lifestyle bears little or no resemblance to the lifestyle of the original Christians when Christianity was founded. Mm, yeah, and and that lack of spirituality is the root of many of today's Christian problems, such as the declining attendance in Christian congregations. 
Exactly so. Sad to admit, John. But that's exactly why we're producing the Saving Christianity podcast. Frankly, our purpose is to help Christians today return to the amazing spirituality of the original Christians. Yeah, that's right. And oh, how we need that. And and since we've mentioned the problems in today's Christian congregations, this is probably a good time to tell our friends about the big principle uh, you're going to reveal or that's actually in the introduction to the book, Saving Christianity. Well, that's right. And I think, John, what you're talking about is you could call it the big takeaway mm. from the introduction to that book. And so why don't we just read that a few sentences to our friends who are listening right now. Here's what those sentences say, and I quote, here's the principle to remember from this introduction. The services, rituals, and programs of today's Christian congregations, when compared to the lifestyle of the early Christians, are two very different things. Many people think that those services, rituals, and programs are Christianity, but they're not. So we're going to talk about how and why today's services, rituals, and programs are different from the vibrant behavior of the early Christians, and we're going to talk about how and why today's congregations don't teach spiritual behavior. We're also going to use a series of simple diagrams to show how you and I can live the early Christian lifestyle in today's world. So when you think about it, we've got a lot to talk about. We do, and that is an incredibly important principle. And it's it's one that also that, that it grows on you yeah. because our friends, uh, we, we realize that what we see in a typical Christian congregation on a typical Sunday morning is not what the early Christians saw. Now, that on the surface, that may be a little bit shocking, but it's not what the early Christians had. That's a disaster, John, but it's very true. And I might just say this, John. I think our friends who are listening in their cars or kitchens or offices, wherever Mm -hmm. they happen to be, need to realize that this podcast that you and I are producing is probably one of the few places, if not the only place, where they can hear these little-known facts about Christianity. Yeah, and that's a key point. We've worked hard for a long time to get this podcast online because we think that it's desperately needed. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So against that background now, uh, against that, that tapestry of the early Christian lifestyle, let's turn to our subject, the sign of the fish. And here's the story in a nutshell. Most people would recognize the fish symbol because they see it on people's uh, trunks and bumpers of their cars. And they know that the symbol indicates that Christians are driving that car. Christians are in that car somewhere. Mm 
And you know, John, you and I even used the fish symbol in the logo of this podcast. Yeah, that's right. We did. Yeah, we think people recognize it. Right. But here's the trick. Most people don't know that the fish sign, uh, what it originally meant. They don't realize that its original meaning was the exact opposite of what it means on people's cars today. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's typical of a lot of Christian history, isn't it? (laughs) A lot of what we see today is the opposite of what it was in the first century. So let's, let's tell our friends what the fish symbol originally meant. Well, you're totally right, John, about Christian history. Much of it is the opposite. But So let's talk about the fish symbol for a minute. And here's something people probably have not thought about. The fish symbol or sign, we could call it, because it was a sign originally, is one of the oldest symbols or signs in world history. It was not originally a Christian symbol. People used it for centuries before there were Christians, for many centuries. The little fish symbol simply meant that it was fishermen or fish merchants using it to identify their wares. And by the way, and this is interesting, the original design in the early centuries was the complete fish. They actually carved on a board or a rock or a wall a complete fish with eyes, fins, scales, the whole deal. And the design that we see today that's made of two curved lines, that comes from the Middle Ages. That was not the original fish symbol. Okay, so when, when, when did Christians adopt the fish symbol, symbol and who decided they would adopt <laughs> it, and what did it originally mean? Those are great questions. They're great questions. And the funny part of it is that uh, all all of the early Christians, the disciples, uh, would have seen it. They probably were using it. And here's why. Uh, Let's talk about it was actually Jesus who decided that Christians would adopt the fish symbol. And he's the person who gave it a Christian meaning. And here's how that happened. John, a lot of people don't know this. The first five disciples, now most people know that Jesus had 12 disciples, Mm -hmm. and that one was a tax collector, and they had different occupations. But the first five, and you could argue five of the most important disciples that Jesus recruited were Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip. And all five of them were professional fishermen on Lake Galilee in Israel. In fact, when Jesus recruited them, he recruited them on the shore of the lake where they were working near the town of Capernaum. Now, we said that the fish sign was not originally a Christian symbol, but we can be sure that the symbol was on the docks, there at Capernaum and in the bazaars, and they had fish auctions. Uh, Peter and the others would auction their fish off in town. You can be sure that the fish symbol was carved on the wall there where that was happening. So they all saw it, knew it, and used it. 
but it didn't have a Christian meaning. Mm, it was very familiar, but when did Jesus change the meaning of the symbol? Well, he did it standing on the shore of Lake Galilee. I've stood there where this happened. And uh, he knew the symbol, of course, himself. He had seen it all of his life. But here's what he said. As he went to each of these first five disciples, he said something very odd. He said, follow me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men and women. I will make you fishers of men and women. That's actually one of the best known and also one of the most important commands in Christianity. Absolutely. And so what did what did the five fishermen do? They did follow him, and he did make them fishers of men and women. In fact, they fished, quotes, so well that they changed world history. But Jesus' command standing there on the shore of Lake Galilee did two things for that ancient fish symbol that people had used forever. First, his command made the fish a Christian symbol because Christians used it ever since. And second, his command gave the sign of the fish a new meaning. Catch this now. Mm. It no longer meant a real fish. It meant non-Christians who needed to be caught, quotes, and made Christians. In other words, let's say that again. The fish symbol now meant non-Christians, and the disciples were supposed to fish for them and catch them. It didn't mean an actual fish in the lake. And, and, and that's the opposite of what it means on people's cars today. Uh, today it means that the people in the car are Christians. That's what's trying to be communicated. But at Lake Galilee, it referred to non-Christians who needed to be Christians. Exactly. And it gets better than that because Jesus had an even more subtle reason for giving the fish symbol to the disciples. And I'm not sure, John, many people have thought about this. He wanted the disciples to put their focus on non-Christians, not on themselves. And so by adopting the fish as their symbol, they were telling the world their mission was this, to convince non-Christians to become Christians. Yes, and that's actually what we call the Great Commission. So the fish is actually a symbol of the Great Commission. Exactly. And you think about most of the people who put that little fish on their car bumpers have no idea that that's what it really means, that they're, it means that they're out on the street to convince non-Christians to become Christians. But instead, they stick it on their car to say, I'm a Christian. You see how that focus flipped. It's reversed. And John, just let me say, when you study early Christian paintings, for example, uh, you'll see many paintings of Christians in boats with nets pulling in loads of fish. Mm. And you'll see that uh, frequently in the catacombs, for example, under Rome. Mm. 
first century paintings, they weren't talking about they liked to catch fish and have a barbecue. They were showing that they were catching and pulling in non-Christians into the boat. The boat represented Christianity. A lot of those have Paul and Peter in the boat supervising the catching of the fish. It's just wonderful. So uh, let's let's explain that a little more to our friends. Well, I think that something a lot of people don't think about is that Jesus started his mission on earth and ended his mission on earth with the very same command. Think about it this way. He started his mission on earth at Lake Galilee, commanding his disciples to be fishers of men and women, focus on non-Christians, Bring them into the boat. But think about it, John. Mm. He ended his mission the very same way. Three years later, back in the province of Galilee again, one of the last things he ever said to his disciples was the same command, except he said it in more detail. He said, Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do everything I've commanded of you. And that's, Owen, uh, the, uh, as you know, the great commission that Christians obey today. So what did the disciples do? <laughs> they obeyed. History shows that after Jesus returned to heaven and left them, They proclaimed Christianity, quotes, in all places, all places, everywhere in the world. And Jesus knew they were going to do that. He predicted it. Mm -hmm. He prophesied it. He said that his disciples would proclaim Christianity to the ends of the earth. Mm, The point being, we Christians are supposed to still be doing that same thing today, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. But And let's slow down a a moment because we're about to miss a really, really big principle. How did they do it? How did they change the whole world in 70 years? How did they convince thousands and thousands of non-Christians to join the movement? Because think about it. Mm. They didn't have radio, TV, and social media. So how did they do it? Yeah. Actually, the way Christianity spread worldwide in only 70 years is one of the biggest <laughs> miracles in history, isn't it? It really is. And, and so that's why the key to that miracle, the key to that 70-year explosion, we're right back again. We've come full circle. Mm. The key is the early Christian lifestyle that special behavior, that special conduct. And I'm sure that our listeners remember that from the previous episode. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Because we said that lifestyles are important. Let's repeat it again. 
Because when you see a person's lifestyle, you're seeing that person's spiritual level. Yeah. A person looks in the mirror right. and sees their behavior. They're looking at how spiritual they are. Yeah, our friends remember that too. Yeah. So here's the secret of success in the first century. Think about this. When I was young, John, there were always books and and recordings and radio programs about the secret of success. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's the secret of success in Christianity. The early Christians turned the world upside down spiritually simply by letting people see their lifestyle. Letting people see their lifestyle. Non-Christians saw mm. the supernatural power that they had, the peace, the healing, the hope in their lives each day. And the non-Christians wanted it. Yeah. So they became Christians to get it. And that's how the movement spread worldwide in 70 years. The whole key is the kind of behavior you see in other people, isn't it? Yeah. It's the behavior That behavior was Christianity's original success, and I would even say it's the key to understanding human life. The principle is so important, it can't be overemphasized, so let me emphasize it again. The best way to attract non-Christians to Christianity is to let them see Christians living a supernatural lifestyle of hope, power, peace, patience, healing, and supernatural love for a matter. Wow. Yeah, wow's right, John. But now let's use that that history to prove the principles true. When Christianity was founded, it was not an organized religion. It didn't even have a name. It didn't have a name. It was based on the supernatural lifestyle the early Christians were living. And the proof of that is whenever early Christians talked among themselves socially, they talked about supernatural behavior. They didn't talk about the size of their congregation or the cost of their buildings or the size of their missionary budget or the size of their youth program the way we do today. They talked about supernatural behavior, and you know, there's a good true story that proves that. Yeah, I bet you're going to tell us the story of Paul and Felix, aren't you? Yeah, Paul and Felix, I am. And that's that, that story, John, is in chapter 1 of the book Saving Christianity. It's the true story of the Apostle Paul when he was put on trial in the capital city of Israel. Now, of course, our listeners will recognize the name Paul. Mm-hmm. He was one of the most famous and gifted Christian apostles of all time. But in this story, he was framed up. He was falsely accused by his enemies, and it ended up with him standing in the governor's palace on trial before the governor, whose name was Marcus Felix. He was a Roman from Rome. And so Felix asked Paul to defend himself, to explain why he was there. 
and Paul said something very strange. He stood up tall before the governor, although he was wearing chains, and he said, The only thing I admit is that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. The only thing I admit is that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. So, Paul didn't talk about buildings, buses, and budgets the way a minister on trial might today. He didn't talk about sermons, choirs, and scout troops. He talked about behavior. And to understand that, we need to remember that the record of Paul's trial, which still exists, was written in Greek. Greek was the official language of Israel at that time, and so in the original Greek, Paul's words, the way, can be translated to mean a special lifestyle, a special conduct, a special behavior. Does that sound familiar? So, he said Paul, as a defense, His only crime was that he had a special way of thinking and acting that non-Christians didn't have, and they arrested him for it. Mm. And that was a strange line of defense, wasn't it? Yeah, I would say. I would say. But he had this supernatural behavior. His enemies didn't like it. Imagine that. Mm. They arrested him for having supernatural behavior. I wonder if that's ever happened in our time. Mm. Well, John, let's summarize then. The early Christians claimed to be people with supernatural behavior that non-Christians didn't have. They didn't claim to have a religion. They didn't claim to have a temple. They didn't even claim to be Christians. All they claimed was that they had supernatural behavior that other people didn't have. That is a mind-blowing principle, Owen. (laughs) And, And by the way, the reason Paul didn't use the word Christian in his defense is that the word Christian didn't exist at the time. Right on. Think about that a minute. That's exactly right. A lot of people don't know that. The word Christian didn't exist among the original Christians. Listen, Jesus didn't use it. The 12 disciples didn't use it. The first full generation of Christians didn't use it. In fact, it's not even a Christian word. They were called the followers of the way, and they didn't invent the word Christian. We'll talk about where the word came from in just a moment, but but let's be clear about this behavior, we keep pounding that nail, about this behavior that the followers of the way had. Mm, Which means it's time to talk about motivation because Christian motivation is unique. Absolutely, totally. You know, scientists say that all behavior is motivated. All behavior is motivated. And that means that All of our outer behavior that we see, eating, dressing, everything we do, is coming from inner forces within us. 
And those inner forces have nothing to do with how we look or with our careers or even with our personal circumstances. I might you give our, give us an example, Owen. Well, it's difficult to give a quick, simple one. Let's try this. Is it true that a person can have ragged clothes and drive a rusty car and yet have kind behavior? Uh, yeah. All right. Is it also true that a person can have expensive clothes and drive an expensive car and yet have rude behavior? Yes. Okay. Doesn't that prove that people's outer behavior is what makes them spiritual and unspiritual, not their circumstances, not their clothes, not their car, their behavior? Are they kind or are they rude? And so it's people's inner motivation that creates outer behavior. Everything boils down to this principle, John. Mm. It's people's inner motivation that makes them spiritual. Let's repeat that. It's people's inner motivation that makes them spiritual, not their appearance, career, or circumstances. That's true. It's like the old saying that a ditch digger can be spiritual and a king can be unspiritual. The, the problem is we tend to judge people by their circumstances, not by their inner motivation. That's right. And that's why we keep saying you look at a person's lifestyle, you're looking at their spiritual level. That's the only thing that proves the degree to which a person is spiritually motivated. In other words, a person's behavior is the only real test of how spiritual he or she is. Well, that's right. I often tell people, John, if you accidentally slam a desk drawer on your finger, what do you do? Do you curse or do you chuckle and praise God? That's the difference. And that brings us now to our final historic fact. Historical fact is the true story of how these followers of the way lost their name. And that's an important story that many Christians have never heard. That's right. And the dirty deed happened in the city of Antioch, Turkey. And it happened 31 years, almost a lifetime, after this movement that Jesus founded and the one that was called the Followers of the Way. So these followers had been focused on this individual spiritual behavior for almost, almost a lifetime, and then something interesting happened. Some of the followers lived in Antioch, and they had a habit of constantly talking about Christ in the streets. Now, we all know that Christ means the anointed one, and it's just another name for Jesus. So they were constantly talking about Jesus, calling him Christ. In fact, you know, John, sometimes followers of the way are called Christ followers. But then the plot thickened. 
this constant talking about Christ in the streets and the shops irritated the non-Christians in Antioch. And the funny thing is, history records that they had a habit, the citizens of Antioch had a weird habit. They liked to give nicknames to everybody. Mm, uh I see where this is headed. The non-Christians gave the Christ followers a nickname, didn't they? Yep, they did. And here's the nickname they gave them. They began to jeer and taunt the Christ followers in the streets and in the shops. Now, remember that the citizens of Antioch spoke Latin at the time. So they began calling out to the to the Christ followers as they saw them, Christiani, Christiani. And in Latin, that meant little Christ, little Christ. See, it was an insult. They thought they were insulting mm. the followers by insulting the beautiful name of Christ. But you know what? Mm. The nickname stuck. And camel caravans passing through the city spread the term worldwide. And in a few years, the followers of the way lost their name. They were never known again as followers. They're now known as Christians. And they're still known, John, by that nickname today. Think about it. The people that we call Christians today are actually the people who were once called followers of the way. So, oh, and as I'm processing this, you know, is do you think that is a bad thing? I do. And I'll tell you why, John. Because the nickname Christian flies in the face of what Jesus told Christians to do, focus on others. So it takes the focus off the supernatural behavior that the followers were known as. Remember, that's what followers of the way meant, the people with the special supernatural behavior. And it puts the title on uh, puts the focus on a natural, a neutral type of religious title, Christian. And you know what happened? The Christ followers today tend to have forgotten that they were supposed to be known for spirituality, not a religious title. And that's one reason, maybe not the only reason, but One reason why the Christ followers today are no more spiritual than non-Christians. They've forgotten that they're supposed to have supernatural behavior. Wow. Wow. These are life-changing principles, aren't they? They they show us Christianity in in a whole new light. Well... I think so, and, and, and John, that's why we're going to the trouble to produce this podcast. We're trying to show today's Christ followers, today's Christ followers, how to return to the wonderful supernatural peace, healing, and hope that the original followers of the way had. Well, There we go again, John. I'm looking at the big clock on the wall. 
and I hate to say it, but it's time to close episode two. And so let's summarize it quickly. And to do that, I'd like to read a few sentences from chapter one in the book, Saving Christianity. Okay. What what part of chapter one are you going to read? Okay. Let, let's read the last paragraph in the summary of that chapter where I'm talking about what happened to the followers of the way. And let's read that quickly, and I quote, As we close chapter 1, several important questions remain to be answered. What happened to the followers of the way? Did they continue their wonderful spiritual lifestyle? And when did Christian denominations, as we know them today, appear in history? How did those denominations affect the followers of the way? Finally, how are the followers of the way faring in America today? The the answers to all of those questions lie just ahead. So, John... We have a lot to talk about again in our next episode, all of the episodes following it. I'd like to remind our friends again that this may be, I could be wrong, but this may be one of the few places on the Internet where they can hear these little-known, rare facts about Christianity. Yes, Owen, and I'm actually, I'm proud of that. We've worked for months. Actually, we've worked for years, (laughs) uh, if you think about it, preparing these episodes, preparing for these episodes. And you've worked for uh, years discovering uh, these hidden facts. Yeah, And, you know, John, in the light of all we've revealed in this episode, I think our friends listening now, wherever they are, in a car, in an office, in the kitchen, anywhere, should be asking themselves this question. To what extent am I a Christ follower? To what extent am I a Christ follower? To what extent does my lifestyle match the lifestyle of the followers of the way? How much supernatural peace, healing, and hope do I have each day? And the good news is we're going to dig up the answers to those questions in episode three. That's why we're going to ask our friends to please subscribe to Episode 3. Yeah, because we've only scratched the surface. So, my friends, as we close, remember this is Episode 2 in our podcast. A script and recording of it are on the Christian Family Online website. And to access that, simply go to cfopods.com. Dot com, C-F-O-P-O-D-S, C-F-O-Pods.com on the Internet and click in the index or scroll down. And Yes, and, and please subscribe to this podcast so we can get you the notifications for episode number three and the rest of the upcoming episodes. Right, and if you don't have one, please grab a copy of the book, Saving Christianity, so you can follow along with the points that we're making. And uh, I would just say there's much more uh, meat in the book, (laughs) 
and uh, then we can cover in our limited time here on our podcast. And I really want to encourage you to 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 get the book Saving Christianity. Yeah, and John, uh, our friends need to know that episode three is really interesting because we're going to talk about what happened to the followers of the way later in history. Do any of them still exist today? Do any of them live in America? And if any of them do exist and do live in America, do they still have that supernatural lifestyle that they used to have? So, Episode 3 is going to dig up more facts from our time capsule. But for now, this is Owen Allen. And this is John Shields along with our producer, Shannon Wolf. And we're saying, may the God of our fathers bless you and keep you and guide you and protect you until we meet again.